I was just struck as I heard Robin read those words from Malachi about I will judge those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. But do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. As I was thinking about the news that I was listening to on the radio this morning and wondering about the state of the world. It's got nothing much to do with anything else I'm going to say, but it just particularly struck me this morning. Do I need to turn this one off? Except, of course, maybe there are echoes with what Mary prayed before Jesus was born about that topsy-turvy kingdom of God, the God who lifts the lowly high and uh, lays the mighty low. It's one of the things that Jesus came to do, was to reorder the world and to change the way that we see it. So as I shared earlier, the feast on this Thursday, the 2nd of February, is the feast of Candlemas, when Christians around the world remember Jesus being taken as a baby to the temple, and that encounter with Simeon and Anna. It's also the day that for some people they say Christmas ends, so if you didn't take your decorations down um, earlier on in January, you were still okay, you could leave them up until Thursday, Um, so maybe that might be something you might like to think about for next year, although those of you who really are quite glad when the decorations go away may be thinking, no, 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 let's not go there. But for some people this is when they say the season of Christmas officially ends on the 2nd of February. I have often wondered how it was that Simeon and Anna recognised Jesus as the one they'd been waiting for. We're not told that there were any obvious signs, such as those that helped the shepherds, who had those hosts of angels singing glory to God on high and pointed them the way to uh, the stable. Or the wise men, the magi, had a star. They had something obvious pointing the way. Mary and Joseph themselves had also both had visitations from angels telling them that this child that was going to be theirs was a special child. Simeon and Anna didn't have stars or angels. This seems to have been a perfectly ordinary presentation ceremony in the temple. They must have seen hundreds, if not thousands, of similar ceremonies in those years of waiting. I was just thinking, too, that... uh, Anna might have been in the temple for about 60 years, waiting, just waiting for this moment. And to make matters worse, of course, neither of them really knew what the Messiah would look like. A baby probably wasn't the first idea that they had in mind. They were more likely to be on the lookout for a man with a beard, and the temple was a crowded place. A lot of people to keep an eye out for, an eye on, if you're looking for a Messiah. But of course the answer is in the text. It was the spirit, spirit who told Simeon to go to the temple. And presumably it was the spirit who, who led him to Mary and Joseph when he got there. But is that so easy? What might it mean for us today? How does the spirit help us to recognize Christ alive and active in the world? 
Maybe Simeon and Anna were ready to hear the Spirit's voice because they were practiced at waiting on God and listening. The spiritual discipline of waiting, of listening, of just being, practicing listening to God's voice is one that we all need to develop. There are many other times too, of course, when Christ was recognized or not recognized in the gospel. The prologue to John's gospel suggests that he was in the world and amongst his own, but the world recognized him not. Christ was recognized by demons when Jesus healed people. He was only recognized by those two on the road to Emmaus when he broke the bread. And he wasn't recognized by Mary after the resurrection until he called her by her name. Perhaps these instances offer us some pointers of when we might too be able to recognize Christ in the world. Are we more likely to recognize him when darkness is being put to flight? Is he more easily recognized in those places where people are engaged in the struggle for justice, peace and hope? Are we more likely to recognize him as on the Emmaus Road when bread is broken not necessarily as we gather around the Lord's table in worship always, but also in those times when we share meals with one another, when we share coffee and cake. In those moments too, hospitality and fellowship are offered and experienced. And in those moments too, we might hear God, see God, recognize God. Are we more likely to hear God's voice when we gather together and share stories of our Christian journeys? I don't know how often you have those opportunities to get together and just talk about what God has been doing in your life. Sometimes I think we should do more of it as churches. I know it's not something we do, ter- we do terribly much of. Always in Stoke, we don't do as much of it as we should. And I'm seeking to encourage people to share their stories, to say where God has been at work in their lives or where they've really wanted God to be at work, but they've really struggled to see him. And it's by sharing those stories often that we can recognize God at work. Are we more likely to recognize Christ, as did Simeon and Anna, when we practice lives of watchfulness, turning our eyes and tuning our eyes and our ears and our hearts for the sound of his voice? Are we more likely to recognize Christ as Mary did when he calls our names, when we put ourselves at God's disposal and are ready to follow his call? Or should we practice the art of recognizing Christ in every person and in every situation? After all, Jesus told the sheep and the goats that whenever they fed the hungry or clothed the naked, whenever they visited the prisoner or welcomed the stranger, then they had encountered him, whether they recognized it or not. We don't know too much about Simeon or Anna, so maybe it's unfair to compare their responses to this day of revelation in the temple. But from what they say, it would seem that they had very different reactions We know that Simeon is from the tribe of Asher. He lived in Jerusalem and he was a good man. God's spirit had told him that he wouldn't die before he saw Christ the Lord. He was waiting for God to save his people Israel. We know precious little about Anna either. We know she was a prophetess and that she too was from the tribe of Asher. 
We know she was the daughter of Phanuel, which means face of God, and that she'd been widowed for many, many years. We know she was a devout woman who often fasted and was in the temple night and day. And maybe those who heard this story that Luke tells, maybe those early hearers of it, would have been struck by the name of her father, Phanuel, and the idea that in Jesus, Anna had glimpsed the very face of God. That's an amazing thing to think of, isn't it? As she looked at that baby, she was gazing on the face of God. I wonder how she felt, what was going through her mind in that moment. It's possible that we could be being unfair to Simeon, given our limited knowledge, but his first reaction is to say, now I can happily die in peace. His reaction suggests that he'd been waiting long and that the waiting had been hard, filled with pain and disappointment. It may be that's a bit how you feel about your journey with God this morning. We don't know Simeon's age, but it's a safe assumption that he and Anna are living the disappointment and the turmoil felt by the people of Israel following that brief period of independence brought about by the Maccabean Revolt, often referred to as the Hesmonean period, when for a few short years the people of Israel were not occupied or in exile. For them, that's becoming a distant memory under the might of Rome, And we can only guess at what they expected to see when the Messiah came. We discover more of that, don't we, as we read through the Gospels, that the disciples were expecting a Messiah, that the people were expecting a Messiah who was going to uh, kick out the Romans and was going to be a great warrior leader. I think it is likely that they were looking for someone like Judas Maccabeus to lead the revolt against Rome. And in Jesus, Simeon thinks he sees the one that he's been waiting for. I want to encourage you this morning, if you feel as though you've been waiting a long time to see the face of God, this story, this story is for you, as it is for all of us, but particularly for you. God comes to those who wait, even if the waiting feels long and hard. And it's interesting to note, isn't it, that Simeon is content to see the Messiah newly born. Simeon's hope is fulfilled without seeing results. We could take this positively and infer that Simeon has faith that though he won't see it, God's new day is dawning for Israel. We don't know whether Simeon would have been disappointed as many others were to see what kind of Messiah Jesus would be. Or we could take it another way. Now I've seen the Messiah, I can happily die. His response suggests that this moment was engineered by God for him alone. It's all about Simeon, as if God is rewarding him for his faith over the years with a glimpse of his glory. This response seems to suggest that now Simeon has seen he's no further part to play. God is working his purpose out and Simeon can relax and die. Whether or not that's fair to him, it's not how Anna saw it. Anna's first reaction is quite different. Her reaction is to go out and tell everyone she met about this baby Messiah. Seems to me in the Gospels quite often it's the women who are portrayed as uh, the chatty ones. Um, After the resurrection, the women go out and tell. They're the ones who go around uh, chatting about what they've seen. Go and tell, Jesus says. And uh, as women, that's what they like to do. So uh, that's fine, isn't it? 
But Anna goes out and she tells the woman at the well. She went off and she told the whole village about this man she'd met. There's something, isn't there, about this encounter with God that makes us want, whether we're women or men, to go out and tell. Maybe we lose something of that as we journey on with God. We forget that enthusiasm of that first encounter. She saw, Anna saw, this as a revelation not just for herself and Simeon, but for everyone, however mad it sounded. I wonder what our expectations are. How do we expect God to act in the world? Many Jews in Simeon and Anna's day wanted God to act in a way that would set them free from the Romans. And looking at the world we live in, how do we expect God to act? Do we expect God to act? What is our own response to the revelation that we've had? Is my Christian faith for me, or is it to be shared? And how does belonging to this church family help me to do that? How does it help me to share that faith in a way that speaks to others? Lord, now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. For my sovereign eyes have seen your salvation, which you prepared in the presence of all people, as a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people, Israel. Familiar words, particularly to those of us who used to sing in parish church choirs. Simeon's great words of praise and hope as he encounters Mary and Joseph coming to give thanks to God for the birth of their baby and to do what the law required of them. As he holds Jesus in his arms, he recognizes here in this child that he and his people have been longing for. All of their hopes are fulfilled in this moment. There's much to wonder at here, but perhaps one of the most amazing things to hear from a man who'd spent his life dedicated to the temple is that phrase that this baby is a light for revelation to the Gentiles. Simeon here recognising that God's relationship with people from now on is not just to be confined to the Jews, but is to encompass all people as he speaks of Jesus who comes as light. It is, yes, a personal revelation, but I think his words proclaim that it's also much more. Light is a universal symbol. It expresses important meanings in both secular and religious life all over the world. Candles are lit for birthdays. Fireworks are set off for celebrations. Lamps burn to remember the dead. Hindus and Sikhs celebrate Diwali as a festival of light. The Jews keep Hanukkah by lighting candles for each of the eight days of the festival. Festivals celebrating light at the darkest time of the year. And for Christians too, of course, light has great significance. Many Christians light candles as tokens of prayer. In some churches, they're lit at times of worship and have their particular place in the liturgies of Advent. We light candles at Christmas and Easter, as well as in some ceremonies, baptism, for example, weddings too. And in the church family at Stoke, when people bring their babies and children for services of thanksgiving and dedication, we offer them a candle as a symbol of light. Candles can provide a focus for the faith and hope of believers and symbolise a deep and eternal truth. At the school in Stoke, where I'm chair of governors, when we do assembly, 
we light a candle. In fact, we've just taken to lighting three candles to remind us not just that Jesus is the light of the world, but that that light is part of the bigger light of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. For Christians, light isn't just a sign of joy or a practical way of expressing hope. It's linked explicitly to the death, the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Christ. And so for us, it's a symbol of Jesus himself. Isaiah speaks of the Messiah as a light to the Gentiles in chapter 42, verse 6, and 49, verse 6. Zechariah looks forward to the time soon to come when the dawn from on high will break upon us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death. Writing of the mystery of Christ's birth, John takes up the image. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. It's not surprising that Simeon draws on Old Testament imagery when he recognizes the child Jesus as the Messiah. In the course of his ministry, Jesus brings sight to the blind and in doing so describes himself as the light of the world. At his death, darkness covers the earth, but his resurrection comes with the dawn. This powerful symbol speaks of Jesus' mission to bring healing and hope, to dispel doubt and to overcome sin and death. It's not difficult to see how this is worked out in Jesus' own life and ministry. It's much harder for us to discern how, if at all, his light continues to shine in our own world, dominated as it seems to be by war, oppression, famine and disease, and very strange things happening in all kinds of places. Are the candles we light today merely nightlights, comforting, but without the power to overcome the darkness that surrounds us? Part of what calls us to celebrate the birth of a child is that like the candle, they too are symbols of hope. Babies are little rays of hope and light in their families and in the world, even more so once they sleep. The prayers we pray with and for them, the promises parents and family and church family make all make clear the hope that one day the child will come to acknowledge for themselves that they're part of God's hope and light in the world. That's what we hope for our children, isn't it? If we love the Lord, we hope that one day they too will come to know him and to love him for themselves. As well as defining himself as light, Jesus also calls us lights. You are the light of the world, Jesus says. That's an amazing image for each one of us to be lights, Jesus' light in the world. Paul takes up this image, applying it to himself and Barnabas when they preach to the people of Antioch. The Lord has commanded us, he says, saying, I have sent you to be a light for the Gentiles so that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So like the apostles, we're called not simply to gaze at the light and draw comfort from it, but to receive it in ourselves and to reflect it to others. Light shows up the darkness. It's often not until we turn the lights on in a particular room that we really notice the dust and the cobwebs. It was not that many weeks ago when we were celebrating the birth of the king who came as a baby, who came to show up the light and who came to show some of those dark places. Jesus stepped down from heaven to become a man, to bring the love and light of God into our world. 
He gave up all the rights and the trappings of God to become a man, bringing the light of God into the world in a unique and particular way. And amazingly, he calls us to continue to be bearers of that light. You are the light of the world, he said. The light of Christ is seen everywhere where his work of promoting healing, justice and reconciliation is carried on. Where people are valued and respected for who they are. Where children are listened to and loved. Where people are welcomed. Where they're shown hospitality and grace. Oscar Romero, the martyred Archbishop of San Salvador, worked strenuously to uphold human rights in the country of his birth. He wrote this. We are not involved in politics. We turn the gospel's light on the political scene. But the main thing for us is to light the lamp of the gospel in our communities. Embracing the light of Christ is not just about candles in church. It's about finding the dark places of our communities and continuing the work of Jesus there. So where are the places in this community? In the communities in which we all live and work where the lamp of the gospel needs to be lit in the coming days.